This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, September 27. Today, what it's like to witness three impeachment inquiries. And the quiet brilliance of Saturday Night Live's Kenan Thompson. So let's start by having you say who you are and what you do. Um, I'm Dan Baltz, and I mostly cover politics at The Washington Post. Dan is actually chief political correspondent for The Post. He's been covering politics since the 60s, which means he's been around for two impeachment inquiries into Presidents Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton. And now that we're headed into the third presidential impeachment inquiry in 50 years, we figured he'd be a good person to ask. What should we expect? You know, it's a multi-step process, and we're only at the front end of it. We think we know a lot about what this is all about all of a sudden because there's some pretty concrete evidence and the the complaint uh, from the whistleblower that came out um, is, you know, it's it's explicit and it's beyond the telephone call. There's much more in there that warrants an investigation, but it has to be investigated. So you've been witness to the lead-ups to two potential impeachments so far and potentially a third one right now. Right, right. Which is extraordinary when you think that it's only happened—I mean, there have only been two other impeachments and then Nixon in the history of this country. And we're now in the third iteration of that since the early 1970s. So we had one in 1868 and then nothing for a long, long time and now several Well, that's one of the things I wanted to ask about first. The fact that it looks like we're going to have three impeachment inquiries, at least three potential impeachments in the span of 50 years. Do you think that is weird? Like, do you think that if the the founding fathers had known that going into things, that they would be like, there should not be three of these in the span of 50 years? You know, it's an interesting question. I just read recently the book uh, by the historian Brenda Wineapple called The Impeachers, which was about the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. And one of the things that she writes about is that when when Congress impeached President Andrew Johnson, nobody really knew what impeachment was to be. And there was a, there was a lot of discussion and debate and wrangling really over, is this a legal investigation? Is this a legal proceeding? Is it a political proceeding? How, what are the rules? Nobody, nobody quite knew, and there was not a lot written about. So what the founding fathers envisioned, I can't say with any specificity. The fact that we have now are in the third iteration of this in 50 years suggests that something has changed in the way people look at the, the process of impeachment or the, the tool of impeachment as a way to check the power of a president. Because these cases are different, obviously. What President Clinton went through in terms of what got him impeached is quite different than what Nixon did that that would have gotten him impeached had he not resigned. And what President Trump is facing as this impeachment inquiry gets underway 
in the House. So it's hard to draw a direct line from one to the other to the other. My sense of what the atmosphere was like when an impeachment inquiry was beginning on President Nixon was that at the time, the idea of impeaching him was relatively unpopular. And the idea of impeaching a president was very shocking. And it feels like that is no longer the case, that people are not shocked by the idea of impeachment and that in some ways it has become more more normalized. Do you think that's the case? It may be. I mean, I think that's a good point. People aren't naturally bent toward the idea of impeaching presidents. So I, I think that when the idea of impeachment kind of enters the the public realm, people are are resistant to it. Uh, and they have to be convinced. And it took a long time. I mean, if you think of the Watergate break-in in June of 1972, it was two years and a couple months later before President Nixon resigned and left office. That's a long time. There were court cases. There were criminal investigations. There was there was a long investigation in Congress. And eventually, there were uh, impeachment investigations in the House Judiciary Committee. Through all of that, there were there was revelation after revelation after revelation. And finally, there was a smoking gun tape. And it was it was in that later period that public opinion crystallized uh, in a way that Nixon knew it was his undoing. In Clinton's case, people in some way or another compartmentalized the difference between personal behavior, private behavior, and public governance. And we were in a period in which the economy was doing quite well. President Clinton was an extremely talented politician who created a bond with with people. And so his approval rating was strong, even in the face of terrible personal behavior. And so at the time when the impeachment was going through, people were still opposed to the idea of it. With President Trump, we're in somewhat different territory because his his personal popularity is not strong. The approval ratings that he has have been consistently below 50% throughout his presidency. It hasn't really changed. I mean, I think the question about a possible impeachment has been sitting out there from the day that Democrats took over the House of Representatives in January because we knew the Mueller investigation was was ongoing. It looked as though after Mueller, it wasn't going to happen. And public opinion has not been on the side of moving to impeach the president. But now you have something that's certainly caught people's attention. And it it seems like it's okay. It's We anticipated that this might happen. And now it seems to be here. What do you think has surprised you in the past while you've been witnessing an impeachment process? I, I tell you, one of the things about it is that it plays out at two levels. On the one hand, there is kind of a general charge, often a kind of a simple charge of abuse of power or criminality or whatever you want to call it. There's a, Wait, explain, explain more what you mean by that, the difference between the simple charge and then the legal argument. Well, you look at the phone call that the president made to the Ukrainian president. Many people read that as a president using the power of his office to ask a foreign government to damage a political rival. That's a fairly simple statement. Mm -hmm. But some people, Republicans in particular, read the the rough transcript of that call and say, there's no explicit quid pro quo. 
there is nothing that untoward about it that the vice, former Vice President Joe Biden and his son deserve to be investigated. What did they do? So there, there's a lot of stuff that gets thrown into it. And as you get into a proceeding, and this was, again, something that happened during the Johnson impeachment in, in the 19th century, once you got into that trial, it was mind-numbing in hmm. terms of what was going on day by day because you, know, you got into lawyers' being lawyers. That's a different part of the of the process. What do you think is a common and persistent misconception about the impeachment process? I suppose it is that there is something simple and straightforward about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, well, also people are, are just confused by what impeachment means, well, right? That that's they think true. to be impeached means to be removed from office. Yeah, that I mean, I, you're absolutely right. That's the first misconception, that if a president is impeached, they're removed from office. The impeachment is an indictment. And then there's a trial, and the trial is the conviction, and that's how you remove them from office. So that's the basic misconception. You know, just the whole question of how that works itself through the political system is another thing that people, well, now that we've, you know, now that we've had two and maybe three, more people are aware of what this involves and may form some opinions about the value of using impeachment as a tool to try to get rid of a president for what a president did, as opposed to using the electoral process. What do you think it it does to a country to witness an impeachment and to entertain the prospect of removing a president through the impeachment process rather than through the, the election process? Like, Do you think it's undermining to the democratic system? Well, it's part of the democratic system. I mean, it's, it is part of the Constitution. It's part of the process that the founding fathers set up. So in in one way, there's nothing aberrant about it. It is a procedure that was created by the founders as a way to deal with a chief executive who had done high crimes or misdemeanors, however defined that is. I think that one of the realities is that compared to the 1970s when Nixon was going through this, this country is much more polarized politically. All impeachments create some polarization. But we're in such a period of polarization that the idea that this will be looked at as a kind of a clean process. An objective process, an objective a non-political process, process. There's no possibility of that. And we know that from everything that has happened both before President Trump took office, but particularly with him in office. Everything is seen through those dual lenses of red and blue. And so that adds a hurdle to those who are pushing the impeachment process. It could make things worse when we think about the polarization of our of our country. Well, it could. And I think it's one of the reasons that Speaker Pelosi has been reluctant to move to impeachment. She's always said her measure of this is she wants some some measure of bipartisan support. And up to now, that has not existed at all. We'll see as this process goes forward whether there are Republicans in the House or the Senate who begin to uh, lend bipartisan credibility to what otherwise is going to be seen as a very political process. Dan Baltz is chief correspondent covering national politics at The Washington Post. 
I really wanted to start this interview by singing the theme song from all that. Who's stopping you? Ah, 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 this is all <laughs> that. This is all Kenan Thompson is on Saturday Night Live. He's been there for 16 seasons, going on 17, longest running cast member, but he came to fame being on Nickelodeon's All That. Everyday French with Pierre S. Cargo. Au gras farm, a volé mes péons rouges. A fat woman has stolen my hot peppers. <laughs> Kenan Thompson grew up in Atlanta. His big role was Mighty Ducks 2, D2. Grab your gear and let's go play some schoolyard puck. Or maybe you forgot what it's like to play for real pride. And that was his big breakout. Like, at one point, he was the biggest kid star in the world. Alahe Azadi is a pop culture writer for The Post. This summer, she spent a couple days with Keenan in New York. We met up at Studio 8H. He was able to show me around the space. Look at it all empty. It's crazy. Look at that. There was a lot of activity in the building because there's a bunch of late night shows that are shooting at this time. But then when we walked over to SNL, it's very quiet because it's summer. They were off. So these are like those two stages will be apartments or, you know, any kind of like conference office. And he was able to just stand up in the stadium seating bleachers. Basically, they look like baseball uh, bleachers. We are in the audience, the back of the audience of the great Studio 8H. If the host came out and looked up to its left, we would be waving at him. That studio is where Keenan really made a name for himself, with sketches like the one about a crazy BET talk show. Then there is his impression of the Red Sox player Big Poppy. Big Dominican lunch with Big Poppy. <laughs> then there was Keenan as the host of a black version of Jeopardy. Welcome to Black Jeopardy. The only TV game show where the audience is in church clothes. <laughs> and during his last 16 seasons on SNL, Keenan has quietly become representative of what it means to be successful in comedy today. For me, it was like I would always want to represent hard work and dedication and professionalism and just focus on the fact that the world needs to laugh, but also trying to move the culture forward and stuff like that and being a great representative for the culture because I am the longest-running cast member on Saturday Night Live, and I am an African-American male, and I think that's a cool stat for America. So, If you go back and watch some sketches where he's not supposed to be the one delivering the laughs, even in the straight character that he's playing, he's able to get a laugh in those roles, and that amps everything up. Uh, okay, what I think we're forgetting... Oh, no. ...is the way that this intersects with the issue of... Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Race. When you talk to cast members, like I interviewed a bunch of people who have been on the show or currently on the show, they talk about how he plays all of these different roles that maybe you and I watching at home don't even take note of, right? Like he's able to sort of set the pacing, the timing on the show. So if the show is running too long or too short, he's able to stretch it out or condense it. He also is a master of just being on television. He knows 
camera angles. He knows what, exactly when he's on and off camera. He knows what to do in order to get the best situation for people to find something funny. And Keenan has become this SNL mainstay, while also at times being one of the few non-white cast members. That made it all the more surprising when, in 2013, Keenan made a comment about the lack of diversity on the show that some people thought was dismissive. A few years ago, he was quoted in TV Guide as saying, in regards to Black female cast members, they never find the ones who are ready. And ever since then, he wants to clear the record and say and talk about how that's not his intention. Of course, there are many, many comedians who are Black women who would be very, or who are very funny. But even when he got on the show and he's been in the business for almost his whole life, he had trouble navigating that space. And so he talks about how SNL is a very particular place and and what he means by being ready for it. It's being ready to work there. Now, I've become the target ever since I, I made that quote. But, you know, it, it's all about progress. You know what I'm saying? But at the same time, they can't just go hiring every, you know, just people for people's sake. It has to be people that are going to fit the program and, like, contribute to the show the way we need it to be contributed to. Like, we got jokes to tell here. You know what I'm saying? We can't just be, like, throwing out a bunch of references just because we want to represent everybody that's in the world. It has to be a reason. It has to be funny. And that's not easy to do. Yeah, and since that quote shows hired more Black women and writers and performers. But looking back, would you have done anything differently or said anything differently? I don't regret what I say because it's what I think in the moment and it's me being myself. You know what I'm saying? And Like if people want to misconstrue that, that's got nothing to do with me. I know I'm a good person. So it's been, you know, shown and proved track record wise over and over again, like what kind of person I am. You know what I'm saying? So I feel fine that I was targeted at the moment but the outcome of what happened, I knew that was going to happen. I was like, well, whatever. If I got to be the villain, then I'll be the villain and it'll open up doors and blah, blah, blah. And that's exactly what happened. And then my villainship came to a swift end because people know that that's not me. You know what I mean? And I'm totally fine with that, too. It's just it's the destiny of the world. Yeah. And you had said yesterday that it had been misconstrued and that you would never intend to... No, I mean, I would never intentionally disrespect black women. That's just crazy. You know what I mean? Like talking about my mom and my sister, you know, and my babies like that's that that makes no sense. But what I was saying, I still truly believe, you know what I mean? You got to be ready to do this show. This is not just like some show in the park. This is Saturday Night Live. You know what I mean? And there's a lot of repercussion to silence because people aren't getting the jokes. And, you know, we can't afford that. This is also a business. And so now he talks about how there's more diversity now. There are more Black cast members. There's more. There's a more diverse writing room than there has been before. And you're starting to see this reflected in the show itself. But I still think that that must be an interesting position for him to navigate because so often SNL is in this position of commenting on things that are happening in the country, in the world that have to do with race and doing it in a way that pushes the boundaries but doesn't cross a line. And you have to think that Kenan Thompson, both from being a person of color on the cast, but also being this longtime cast member and kind of a more of a leader figure among other members of the cast, that he is someone who has to be thinking about that more than maybe anyone else. 
I think he's very aware of the unique role he is in. And he also talks about how, for instance, with black production companies that are producing comedies, there just aren't many production companies owned by black people that are producing comedies. And and he wants to kind of get in that space and produce more so that there are more roles that fit within the black experience rather than the way he talks about how it's almost like I'm taking a test, like an SAT test that doesn't fit within my experience and I have to learn how to navigate this. And he'll talk about how being on SNL and being in that writer's room, he's able to bring his experience into that space. And then also there's things happening or the culture that people come from or their, you know, a lot of these people like came from Harvard, were writers at Lampoon, and they have their own cultural touchstones and everything that are different than his. And so how do you, what happens when you bring those two things together? Can you find space for them? Um, and one of the sketches that kind of came out of a clash of those two experiences was the scared straight sketches that he did that he wrote with Colin Jost. What'd you think? I never drank? Oh, I drank all right. And then right before my wedding, my best friend took me on a tour through wine country. Yeah, I kept tasting different wines. And then pretty soon I was cheating on my fiance with some Asian lady. Is that what you want? Hmm? The Asian lady from Grey's Anatomy punching you in the face? Cause this is real! Isn't that the plot of the movie Sideways? Hey! just had never heard of these videos, these scared straight videos. <laughs> and so like when he started describing, when Keenan started describing them, they like came together and wrote these sketches that was, was that was actually his first, Keenan's first sketch that was his, where he was the star. Mm. Keenan Thompson has been in the spotlight since he was a teenager, since he was 14 years old. And he has also been in spaces where he is one of few black performers and is aware and conscious of what that means and comes with it. And Especially because this is a problem that SNL continues to be facing in terms of issues having to do with casting or diversity. Like, even recently, they announced that they were going to be hiring a new cast member, Shane Gillis, who they ultimately had to unhire because he had been on his podcast using racist language that people demanded that he not be on the show. And so— it's still a problem that SNL is dealing with that I would imagine Kenan Thompson also has to be aware of. Yeah, and what's interesting, too, about the whole Shane Gillis thing was that within that crew group of hires was Bowen Yang, who is the first East Asian American cast member. He's openly gay. And so if it were not for that <laughs> Shane Gillis story, like, that's really what everyone would be talking about, I think. And so SNL remains one of these monocultural institutions that everyone still has opinions about, mm. whether they watch it or not, whether they claim to care about it or not. When they do something, people care. So who they hire, whether there are Black women on their cast, whether there is someone who's used racist language in the past is on their cast. Like, people will have very strong opinions about that. And you have Kenan Thompson, who is a master at sketch and also understands how show business works and that this is a business. And what he wants to be known as is someone who's a professional who comes and does his job, like, understands, like, what his purpose is and what the purpose of the show is. Alahe Zadi is a pop culture writer for The Post. The 45th season of SNL premieres this weekend.
What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Renny Svernovsky, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who also wrote our theme music. The Post's director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.